you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Florida Congresswoman Val Demings is here to talk about the explosive news that Donald Trump's Justice Department secretly obtained the records of her fellow House Intelligence Committee members and their families. Then, we'll discuss how a series of new reports about rich people avoiding taxes should shape the Democratic agenda and take a look at some of our favorite moments from Joe Biden's first foreign trip. But first... Check out this week's Pod Save the People, where DeRay and the gang discuss the history and importance of Juneteenth. And in honor of Pride Month, our own John Lovett returns to the stage for an exclusive <laughs> Love It or Leave It special. <laughs> called returns out to of, the stage. That, look, I just read the housekeeping. Called Out of the Closets, Into the Streets. Tell us all about it, Lovett. I'll let you explain. We have, um, it's just going to be a big live show. We're going to uh, record it live. We haven't announced the guest yet, but I saw just who's confirmed. We still got some maybes out there. Just who's confirmed? We have an incredible list of people uh, coming. Uh, so uh, make sure you check it out. And we're doing it. It's a big fundraiser for the Trans Justice Project, which basically distributes money to local organizations doing work on the ground. We really wanted to find something where you could donate and know that it's going directly to local organizations that need the money. So go to crooked.com slash pride. It will be on Thursday, June 24th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Is it true you're working on a Check whole out, whole new hour like Gene Smart, all new material? <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of, much more personal. All right, I'm no longer, you know. And uh, let's just say, look, and for those of uh, for for the, for the there's been a bit of a kerfuffle over my conversation with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, and I'll just say we're going to address it. Uh, and no more jokes about wow. No more jokes about burning Emily Favreau's house down. Hard pass. Got it. Okay, John, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. He's still, still smarting from that. Still smarting. Mm-hmm. All right. Still smarting. Let's get to the news. Last week, we learned that Donald Trump's Justice Department secretly seized phone and email records from reporters at CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times while investigating leaks about the Russia probe. Then on Friday, The Times reported that DOJ also secretly subpoenaed Apple for the metadata records of 73 phone numbers and 36 email accounts belonging to House Intelligence Committee members Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, their aides, and their families, including a child. The subpoenas turned up zero evidence of any leaks. And now Senate Democrats and President Biden's Justice Department have launched their own investigations into what looks like an unprecedented abuse of power, something no president has ever done, not even Richard Nixon. Joining us 
To talk about what's next here is someone who's no stranger to investigating Donald Trump, former House impeachment manager and current 2022 candidate for Marco Rubio's Senate seat, Florida Representative Val Demings. Congresswoman, welcome to Pod Save America. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, your committee, the Intel Committee, was the DOJ's target here. Um, you, Chairman Schiff, Speaker Pelosi, and others have all called for an investigation. Why hasn't anyone in the House threatened subpoenas for former Attorneys General Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions to testify yet, both of whom denied even knowing that lawmakers were targeted? Well, you know, let, let me just say this. As you indicated in your opening statement, this is unprecedented for any president in the United States. And how many times do we have to go through this with the former president? He's done a lot of unprecedented things. But what I can guarantee you is, once again, he has reached an all-time low. Those in the Justice Department allow themselves to be used as his weapon against what he perceived as his political enemies. And we will get to the bottom of it. And I am sure that we will use whatever tools necessary to make sure that we get the whole truth and the complete truth about exactly what happened. We know the names that have been called, including a minor, but we do not know the full extent. And so we have to know the full extent of this unbelievable abuse of power. And I'm sure we will use every tool that we need to get to the bottom of it. And so that sounds like that you will issue subpoenas if Barr and Sessions refuse to testify on their own. Well, I think it's it's critical that we find out what Barr and Sessions knew. I mean, we've heard their statements. We've heard uh, A.G. Barr try to distance himself. Well, you know, I would say it's about time. Um, but we yeah. need to use whatever tool necessary to get to the bottom of it. And I'm sure leadership in the House uh, will do just that. Of course, you know, this has been at the top of their mind since the story broke, and it will continue to be. The American people deserve to know. Certainly the members of Congress, their staff and family members uh, deserve to have a thorough investigation. And quite frankly, every member who could potentially be targeted in such a awful way needs to know the outcome of this investigation. What are some of the top questions that you want answered? Uh, fr from this story? Well, you know, from the very beginning, it seems like this was the president um, had a solution first and then went looking for a problem. Uh, you know, Adam Schiff uh, led the uh, investigation because of his committee assignment as chairman of Intel. He was just doing his job along with the members of the Intelligence Committee, it would be nice if the president had chosen to do the exact same thing. And so I would particularly be interested in what information, what evidence did the president have that led him to the actions that he was involved in to actually get or uh, have those records subpoenaed, phone records, multiple uh, phone numbers, including that of a minor, what probable cause did he have to move forward uh, with that investigation? I'd be quite interested in hearing that answer. President Biden has ordered prosecutors to stop seizing reporters' phone and email data for the purpose of leak investigations. Do you think that that ban should be enacted as a law in order to make sure that future administrations can't undo it? You know, I certainly think that we have an obligation. Certainly, I think President Biden um, is off to a great start, but we have an obligation to put 
uh, laws in place, policies are one thing, procedures are another. But in those areas that we have consistently had issues or problems, or in those areas that allow us to have an opportunity to be proactive in our response, I think we always should look to legislation to codify some of the executive orders that the president may have written. And so again, leadership, and we will continue to be looking for those opportunities to make sure that the American people are not victimized. More broadly, do you think the Justice Department is doing enough to investigate the wrongdoing and potential criminality of the previous administration? Your colleague, uh, Congressman Brendan Boyle, told the Washington Post this week, you know, he used to think it was better to look forward and not back. But with Donald Trump, it's sort of impossible to look away because it's it's just too dangerous not to investigate what happened. Well, you know, I, I share my my colleague Brandon's sentiment, right? But for me, as a former law enforcement officer, um, you always, I believe, have an obligation when uh, there is suspected wrongdoing, certainly to the gravity of the former president's actions, we have an obligation. It's not necessarily about looking backwards or moving forward. It is about, you know, the same that I love to say, everybody counts, but everybody is accountable. And as you said, as you began uh, this particular segment, these are unprecedented times. And we have a president who did whatever he could, whenever he could, to use the power of his office in basically in a criminal way. And so regardless of who that person is or what name they carry, we as legislators certainly have an opportunity to make sure that we provide the necessary oversight to make sure that we hold those who violate the law accountable because no one is above the law and really make sure that we've taken care of past vulnerabilities. So moving ahead, possibly we can prevent the same thing from happening in the future. Uh, there were reports on Friday that negotiations over police reform are falling apart over qualified immunity. You're a former police chief. If this bill doesn't make it any easier for victims to sue officers or at least departments over police misconduct, is it still worth passing? You know, I really believe, look, a year, over a year now, on the other side of what happened to uh, George Floyd. And I don't think there's anyone who's heard his story who does not agree that what happened to him was brutal, it was senseless, and it was murder. It should never have happened. And now, yet again, it is incumbent on us to take the necessary steps to prevent it from happening in the first place or happening the next time. You know, I am just, I, I know that this has been an up and down path to try to get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed, but I'm not quite ready to throw in the towel just yet. I do believe that the legislation before the Senate, although not perfect, is quite reasonable. We still will have a lot of work to do, but I am just hoping that those who are in negotiations on both sides of the aisle will stay at the table and operate under the, the umbrella of what's reasonable. And while I said, I do think the law is not perfect, but I do think the provisions in the law are reasonable. Let's move forward and get this done. 
And then let's quickly get back to the table involving every entity, involving lawmakers, involving law enforcement, involving advocates, community advocates, involving uh, social workers and educators and others in the process to look at the next phase of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But I'm not ready to give up yet. We have got to get this done. How important is is qualified immunity to you as as, as someone who's who's had experience uh, running a police department? You know what I try to remind people in this as we're having this very important conversation is this because I frequently talk to people and they'll say, "Well, if I was a law enforcement officer and I did the same thing, I would be arrested today and you know led off in handcuffs immediately." And what I try to help them understand is that. Well, they do not have, as a citizen, do not have a duty to act. If they see a knife fight in progress, for example, or a gunfight in progress, they can simply walk away. Now, we would certainly hope that they would call the uh, 911 and then be a witness to what occurred. Law enforcement officers do not have that uh, ability. They have to engage. If they see a knife fight or a gun fight in progress, they cannot simply walk away and say, oh, I'm not gonna get involved in that because it may not go well and then I'm going to, who knows what will happen to me. They have an opportunity and obligation to engage. And so I, I try to remind people of that. They have a duty to act, but by the same token, they're always supposed to respond as they are trained if they respond as they're trained and we find out that the training is substandard, then we need to look at the training. They always have an obligation to treat people with dignity and respect. And so we need to, as we have this very critical, very important discussion, I believe that law enforcement officers who violate their policies are engaged in egregious behavior, who have forgotten the profession uh, the professionalism, if you will, of their profession should be held accountable in a personal way. But as we engage in this conversation, I and that's why I think it's so critical, it's so important rather, that we engage law enforcement officers, community advocates, legislators, um, you know, social workers and others in this discussion so we can get exactly to the place that we need to be. The American public deserves that. And quite frankly, the law enforcement profession deserves that as well. Uh, you're hoping to unseat Marco Rubio in, in 2022, uh, an incredibly small man who's already tried to brand you as a far left extremist uh, who wants to defund the police, to which you cleverly responded by posting a photo of yourself in uniform as police chief. Um, how much do you plan to lean on your law enforcement credentials in this race? You know what, I'm going to lean on who I am. This is about telling a story. I was a law enforcement officer for 27 years. I served at every rank within the department, had the honor of serving as the chief of police, the first woman to do so at my agency. That's who I am. And I will tell that story just like I tell the story of being the daughter of a maid and a janitor growing up black, poor and female in the South. If those stories make Marco Rubio uncomfortable, that is his problem. That's not my problem. I believe I have an obligation as I run for the US Senate 
to make sure that the American people know who I am. And I really do believe that everybody counts, but everybody is accountable. When I served as an impeachment manager against the former president of the United States, it wasn't personal, but he abused his authority, violated the law, and he should be held accountable. And so as we move forward in our campaign, I will continue to introduce myself to Floridians and to the American people. I am really excited about this race. What do you say to a lot of younger voters, progressive activists who who really want to see more systemic police reform, who think that we should be transferring some funding from police departments to more community-based safety strategies? What would you say to them? Defunding police is not the answer. I do not support defunding the police. But what I do support is that America needs to get serious about addressing some of the social ills that we face in this country in the first place. When you talk to some of the most vulnerable black and brown communities, and believe me, I've done so for a lot of years, walking and talking as a patrol officer and, and, and in other positions as a member of Congress. What they tell us is that they don't wanna see less police. They wanna see more police because they believe if you cut resources, then they are going to become even more vulnerable. What they want though, is to be treated with dignity and respect. And they should be treated with dignity and respect, not just by law enforcement. You know, as we hold America to its promise in the criminal justice system, we need to do that and we will. But we need to hold America to its promise in all things. We need to get serious about addressing mental health illness. You know, we need to get serious about addressing drug addiction. You know, we say here in, in, in Orange County, Florida, in Orlando, that the greatest drug treatment facility and the greatest mental health uh, treatment facility is the Orange County Jail. Now that's ridiculous. You know, and I'd love to lean on the words of the former chief of the Dallas Police Department, David Brown. He's now the commissioner in Chicago, but this is what he said on a day that he had five officers assassinated. He said, every time there is a societal failure, we call the police to fix it. Mental health counseling, call the police. Drug addiction issues, call the police. Schools fail, give it to the police. They'll take care of it. And so what I'm saying is that, yeah, we need to fix the criminal justice system and we will do that. I am committed to that. But we've also got to get serious about addressing those social ills that cause decay in communities in the first place mental health counseling, drug addiction treatment, better housing, better education, better wages, better jobs, better training. That's the America that we were created to be. And that's the America that I'm gonna work hard to make sure that that's the America that we become. Um, Florida Democrats have broken our hearts so many times over the last few elections. Uh, what what lessons have you learned from those losses and, and what do you intend to do differently than the last several statewide campaigns? I do believe that I am a unique candidate. I'm a different candidate and I'm getting ready to do something that Florida has never seen before. An African-American woman born and raised in Florida running for the U.S. Senate. I am going to build 
the most diverse, unique coalition from Tallahassee down to Miami, from the Panhandle down to the Keys, North, South, East, and West. And we're going to get this done. I really do believe that Florida is ready, right time, right candidate. And I am going to do everything in my power to talk to the voters about the things that they care about. Already I've heard many times that they don't see Rubio, that they don't really know him, that they don't have conversations with him. And so I'm going to do what I've always done. And that's to get out, walk and talk, may ride my motorcycle on some days, but I am going to talk to the voters about things that they care about. I've been doing that a long time. I certainly don't intend to stop this time. Do you have any plan to run an ad that's just a split screen with you riding your red Harley and then that famous picture of Lil Marco Rubio sitting in that oversized rocking chair? I just, I think that might be a good ad. <laughs> <laughs> what I'll tell you is just stay tuned, okay? Just stay tuned. <laughs> that's good. I'll take that. Stay tuned. Um, my, my, last, my last question for you before I let you go, um, you were just talking about how, you know, you grew up black and poor in the South. If you win, uh, you'll be the first uh, black woman senator from, from Florida. Um, Juneteenth is coming up. Do you have any personal reflections on, on, that, on that day? You know, let's think about it. And I'll, I'll be very, I'll say this very quickly. Uh, Emancipation Proclamation signed by Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln on January 1st of 1863. That's significant. But even more significant in a sad way is that it took two years for the last group of enslaved people to receive word in Galveston, Texas. We've known um, Juneteenth as Freedom Day. And there are celebrations because certainly the end of slavery is something to celebrate. But Juneteenth has, has to be about more than a one day celebration. You know, we, call, we say in this country that we are the home of the brave and the land of the free. And we have to make sure that freedom is something that we celebrate every day, not just freedom for ourselves, but freedom for all people. When there is an attack on voting rights, that's an attack on our freedoms. When there is discrimination against who you love or where you live or where you might be able to get an education because you can't afford it. That's not just an attack on certain people, that is attack, an attack on our freedoms. And so as we celebrate Juneteenth, because it is a day of freedom, it has got to become a state of mind in this country that we really do believe that all people should be free, free from discrimination in this country, free from hate in this country. And so I'm looking forward to this weekend and participating in uh, many of the celebrations, but we've got to look at Juneteenth as more than just one day to celebrate who we are and who we have become and who we still need to become as a nation. Congresswoman Val Demings, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck to you in the race and um, please come back again soon. I will. Thank you so much. All right, you guys heard uh, Congresswoman Demings um, tried to see if the House was going to actually subpoena these guys uh, to, to get some answers. Uh, the Senate has already said that they would, but apparently Senate Democrats need Republicans to agree to a subpoena. 
because it's 50-50. So the House has the power. I was sort of curious why they haven't started threatening these subpoenas yet. But it sort of goes to the bigger question of like how much the Democrats want to be investigating the Trump administration. Um, what, what did you think, Tommy? It seemed like where she ended up was that they will use all the tools that they need to get to the truth. So that to me said, we're, we're warming up our subpoena pens. But was that how you interpreted it? I think so. It seems like they're going to get there. They just, she said all the tools, all the tools yeah. they have, which yeah. is which is good. I was going to ask you. I mean, there's obviously there's obviously a lot we still don't know. Um, but how do these Trump DOJ leak investigations seem different than the leak investigations under Obama or prior administrations? Just for people who are listening who might not know. Sure. So, I mean, just like the the broader context is, right, when there's a news report that has classified information in it, sometimes it will get referred to the Department of Justice to open an investigation into what happened. And the goal is to find and punish the government employee who broke the law. But sometimes in the process of that investigation, DOJ has demanded records from journalists uh, to try to find their sources. Um, I was interviewed as part of two of those leak investigations. And even though I knew I had not done anything wrong, it was terrifying and awful. So during that, Obama's first term, DOJ, uh, prosecutors at DOJ seized phone records and email records from reporters in two different leak investigations. It was the wrong thing to do. I think Obama thought so as well. And after that news came out, uh, he basically told Eric Holder to go back and review DOJ's rules around how you manage these cases. Holder ultimately put in place regulations that made it harder to go after journalists' records, and he made it so DOJ would have to notify news outlets about a subpoena so they could fight it or negotiate over what they turn over. What's new here is that Trump's DOJ demanded that Apple turn over records belonging to members of Congress and seemingly a minor child of one of the members of Congress to the government-imposed gag orders on these news outlets and told them that they couldn't talk about what happened. And then three, they seized these records without giving these reporters any advance notice. And there's also reports that Don McGahn, the former Trump White House counsel, had his records turned over by Apple. I find that more confusing than anything else, which is like setting that aside. But I guess none of this should be a surprise to us, right? Because Trump was publicly accusing Adam Schiff of leaking classified information, but it's still pretty shocking. And so it does seem like all of this is kind of pouring out right now because, well, of course, Biden took over uh, the Department of Justice. But also last month, Biden said he would not permit DOJ to seize these kinds of records from journalists. As as Congresswoman Demings, you know, said, that's a good step, but it's an administrative step. And, you know, it, to get to a permanent fix, you're going to need Congress to pass some sort of new law that says, like, these decisions aren't just up to the discretion of each administration. Uh, and, you know, this gets complicated, right? Because you have to decide then who a, who is a protected journalist. Is it the New York Times? Is it Julian Assange? Is it all of them? Like, that's not easy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, some some shocking stuff, especially the whole matter of, of going after Adam Schiff's emails. I mean, that's crazy. Love it. What was your take on this uh, whole story that broke Friday? Yeah, I mean, on the... You know, Tommy, you brought up the McGann thing, which I think is a small example that says that we just like we need to know more information. We just need to know more. Like, yeah. for example, like the McGann piece of this is was that done by agents seeking out information on behalf of Donald Trump, trying to find out who's talking to who? Was this the Mueller investigation uh, looking at right. McGann's uh, um, communications because he may have involved in some of the uh, uh, crimes that Mueller later uncovered? We don't know. Uh, same to a lesser extent goes for the information around reporters and members of Congress um, you know, they, they are seeking, they, they, uh, go after shifts records, swallows records, bar comes in, keeps the investigation open. Why? Nothing ever came of it, right? We never learned anything about what came out of those documents. How much of this is, um, 
a morally wrong but practice that existed in other administrations. How much of this is the Trump administration targeting its enemies? We don't know. And I think it just just goes to the larger um, point of we need better rules and laws restricting what the DOJ can and cannot do. And some of the lessons, I think, about going after reporters, even in Democratic administrations, shows us some of the dangers of putting that kind of power in the hands of even less scrupulous administrations. The, the last question on this for you guys. I remember this NBC story like right after the election where it had like five sources close to Joe Biden said he really doesn't want to spend a lot of time in his presidency investigating uh, Donald Trump or looking back at sort of the Donald Trump administration's wrongdoing and criminality. Um, it does seem like up until now, both Democrats in Congress and Garland's DOJ, Merrick Garland's DOJ, has been sort of reticent to do a lot of investigating of the Trump administration. I don't know that they're going to have that much choice anymore um, on whether or not they do that. But what do you think about the the wisdom of that, Lovett? I mean, here's here's the problem. Uh, crimes take place in the past. Uh, that's where they happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I am very I am I am sympathetic. The politics of this are difficult. Uh, that said, you know, the hope that we can just move forward, that we can just move forward over and over again. We pay for that tenfold. You know, the failure to hold Donald Trump accountable for his previous crimes puts him in a position to launch an insurrection. The failure right now to look back and figure out what the Department of Justice did wrong, uh, uh, what crimes took place inside the Department of Justice will mean that the next time you have an abusive president, they are not as limited as they should be. Like, I, I get that you want to talk about other issues, but unfortunately, like, events have intervened. Like, I don't know what, how are we supposed to be a nation of laws if when the most powerful people in our country break the law, abuse our system, there is no accountability. It is a recipe for impunity for the worst actors in our in our system. And at a certain point, like, we have to just accept that, yeah, the politics may not be great, but we have to do uh, um, we have to understand what went wrong if we ever have a hope to fixing it. This is something Adam Schiff has talked about a lot, that one of the reasons he wants to pass a reform bill based on what we learned from the Trump administration is that we have no choice because looking back is the only way we can pre- protect ourselves um, in the future. That's it. Tommy, last word on this. I mean, look, the, the, the hard thing here is the Department of Justice is supposed to be independent. You're not supposed to politicize these investigations. The president of the United States isn't supposed to direct these investigations. That is 99% of the time a very good thing. I just talked about the examples of these leak investigations during the Obama administration where that independence wasn't a good thing because they went after a bunch of journalists in ways that really pissed Barack Obama off. And I think he wouldn't have wanted to happen. In this instance, like I, I have some sympathy for the Biden team. The question, I guess, is just like, by what mechanism are you looking back? I, I do think it's entirely appropriate for the DOJ inspector general to figure out what the hell happened with these subpoenas. It's entirely appropriate for the Intelligence Committee uh, or or the you know the House side and the Senate side to look into the way prosecutors may or may not have been abusing their power, seeking the records of members of Congress, seeking journalist records, et cetera. But it's like, you don't want to get into a place where you are Look, the, the the uncharitable description would be sort of parroting some of the worst excesses of the Trump administration by telling your new AG to go after your former opponent, right? You at least have to worry about the optics of that and think long and hard about like the proper channels and ways to do this. I, I do think like we obviously can't let Trump get off and, and you know, get away with a bunch of crimes he may or may not have committed. I just think we have to think long and hard about how and who is doing these investigations and and go from there. But like all of like 
this last month of news is incredibly troubling. This should worry everybody that DOJ was targeting members of Congress. That is bonkers. Yeah. I saw Chris Hayes tweeted something the other day. He said, these people aren't going to stop until they um, get away with it or end up in jail. <laughs> the Trump people. Like, it's it's clear they're just going to keep going until one of those two things happens. Until they win or they end up in jail. And like, you know, I, I have this feeling. I, I know I think part of it is this horrible year and past four years we just went through. Part of it is the fact that the state is in a drought, um, <laughs> that, that we're about to have um, brownouts in this city, there is this feeling of tenuousness all around us. Our democracy hanging by a thread, these states passing laws that will allow their legislatures to overturn the results. And like, I don't know. I don't like, I get that people listening to this. It's like, in the one hand, I want politics to be boring. And then maybe you won't want to listen to this as much because it's boring. On the other hand, I don't want politics to be depressing. And then it's just another round of depressing politics because we have to be so terrified of like, everything that that, <laughs> that the future holds. But like, this feels like the eye of a storm. We have this chance, this moment of calm to like protect ourselves, to like put sandbags where we need to put sandbags, to like be ready for what's about to come. And I'm really worried we're not using it. We're just not using it. And everybody, and there's just way too much complacency. And I don't know how we shake ourselves out of it. Um, but but that's how it feels. The drought, you got the drought in there too. Wow. I'm thinking about the drought. Yeah. Make it rain, Joe Biden. Yeah. Lead, just lead. Just lead. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. So the other big debate in Congress this week is over how to pay for Joe Biden's jobs and infrastructure plan. The president proposed eliminating Trump's tax breaks for corporations and the richest 1%. But the new bipartisan deal proposed by 10 Republican and Democratic senators on Friday keeps the Trump tax breaks. This is after we learned from a ProPublica investigation last week that between 2014 and 2018, the 25 richest people in the United States, including Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, paid an average of 3.4% in federal income taxes that is way below the top rate of 37% and the 14% in federal taxes that the median American household pays. Uh, just a few days later, after the ProPublica investigation, the New York Times reported that the $4.6 trillion private equity industry avoids paying taxes thanks to loopholes, regulations, and strategies so aggressive and potentially illegal that at least three private equity officials have alerted the IRS which hasn't done anything about it because they don't have the resources to audit rich people, so they go after everyone else instead. Tommy, rich people avoiding taxes, nothing new. We all we know that's a that's a thing that happens. But what if anything did you learn from the ProPublica or New York Times pieces? I think that maybe in the back of my head, I always assumed that avoiding taxes required complicated schemes where you have money in banks in the Cayman Islands or some, you know, tax shelter in Ireland or blah, blah, blah. 
No, it's actually really, really easy. You just reduce your income as much as possible because that's what our tax code has decided deserves to be taxed. And you get all your compensation in stock if you're a Bezos or a or a Elon Musk or all these guys because you only get taxed on the value of your stock once you sell it. And in a lot of cases, that makes sense, right? Like stock prices go up and down. Paper gains don't mean anything to the average person who has like a couple shares. But when you're super rich, you can get banks to lend you tons and tons of money against the value of your portfolio, against the value of your stocks. And then not only do you not have to pay taxes when you realize your gains by selling those shares, but if you get the loan, you can write off the interest payments on your loan and reduce your taxes even more. So, you know, I, I think the other big takeaway for me was just how unbelievably aggressive a lot of these billionaires were um, to the point where a lot of them were paying zero taxes because they were writing off losses in other places. Jeff Bezos got a tax credit for his children, like a $4,000 tax credit that I assume is usually for like the working poor. So uh, it's a disgusting system being manipulated by some shitty, shitty people. And it's all and and it's legal, right? It's, it's legal. not the <laughs> that's the problem with it is what's legal. I mean, I think that the New York Times story too, uh, to follow up on the ProPublica investigation, also made me realize just how shitty the IRS is at auditing fucking rich people because yep. <laughs> they don't have the resources, so they just go after poor people instead. Yeah, I don't love it. I have my pitchforks out. What do you think? <laughs> pitchforks. Uh, yeah, I would say that like the ProPublica piece was interesting in that it kind of puts a lot of detail on what we basically already know. I didn't find that the ProPublica information was actually that that revealing. It's just very specific. It's like, look at, we know what the tax code allows these people to do. Look at how these individuals have been actually doing it. You know, we had a lot of information on what Trump was doing to evade taxes. Trump is not unusual. I was more galled by the the time story because, you know, yes, a lot of what's in the ProPublica is, story is what's legal. But what what what's in the New York Times story that to me is interesting is what these private equity firms are doing is only as illegal as our ability to hunt and punish them for manipulating the tax code. Uh, already, there's this loophole called carried interest, which basically says they treat the income they make doing their jobs of making money uh, with money that, that that that's their service that they provide. That's already taxed like like a like an investment. So it's taxed instead of at thirty seven percent, what we hope should be thirty nine point six percent. It's tapped at twenty percent. That's a big difference. But what was remarkable is these people are it's so they're so greedy and they have been so above the law for so long that they're also applying. Basically, they charge a two percent fee for what they do. All right, two percent, two percent of a billion dollars is a lot of money, and they figured out yet another way to manipulate the tax code that allows them to pay an even lower rate on that 2%, which is just clearly violates the spirit of the law. Uh, when they've been caught, it seems as though they're not doing it anymore because they recognize that it violates the letter of the law. There have been a number of whistleblowers about this. But of course, the combination of Trump, the Trump uh, administration stacking the IRS and the Treasury Department with officials who are extremely friendly to these industries, plus the fact that the IRS has been gutted. They lost a huge percentage of their uh, um, of their auditors between 2008 and 2018 meant these people are operating with impunity. Ron Wyden, who is great on this issue and a lot of other issues too, pointed out that you are just slightly more likely to be struck by a meteor than you are to be audited for these kinds of practices. I think it comes down to like 
work in this country is taxed, wealth is not, or at least wealth is taxed very little. That's that's just what it is. If you're already wealthy, if you're accumulating more wealth, you're going to get away with not paying a lot of taxes. If you work, you're going to pay your income taxes. I think the question is, what can be done about this from a policy perspective? Because, you know, I started off by talking about sort of Republicans refusal to raise the marginal income tax rate or corporate, the corporate tax rate. But neither of those would actually do anything about what was in the ProPublica investigation or the New York Times private equity story. Uh, Tommy, what, what can be done from a policy perspective? Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's a huge problem because uh, they, they're very clear in the New York Times piece about private equity that good tax lawyers basically just run circles around most IRS auditors anyway. And so that makes it hard to recoup any of these funds. And, you know, in some cases, even during the Obama administration, efforts to, to you know, clamp down on these loopholes actually made it easier for super rich people to evade taxes. So it's a big problem. I do think it's clear that we need to hire more people at the IRS and tell them to prioritize audits of the super wealthy. Longer term, there needs to be some sort of reform of the tax code so that the IRS has better tools and laws and regulations available to them to tax wealth and not just income. I mean, I don't, I don't think I don't think it makes any sense to anybody that this is how our system functions, that working people, you know, Warren Buffett always talks about how he pays less in taxes than his secretary. We didn't realize just how much less, Warren. Uh, it's pretty gross. But, you know, <laughs> longer term, I do think like the Democratic Party needs to make this one of the top two core messages uh, and things that we talk about every single day, because it is wildly offensive to anybody who reads about it when, when you when you see these tax avoidance schemes spelled out and we see just how fair unfair the system is um, when you are a billionaire. One thing that I would just add to that, though, is I, there's been this I, this coverage that's like, well, raising the rate, these other steps doesn't actually address the fact that they accrue all this wealth without it ever being taxed. That's partially true. There's an incentive for people to hold on to stock for a very, very long time, because if they die while they have it, then it gets passed on to their kids at a stepped up basis, which means the capital gains accrued over a lifetime may never, ever be 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 recognized, will never be recognized as income. So while it's true that like a, I'm not a, I think a wealth tax is a great idea that, that a wealth tax specifically addresses this issue. One way that we could get people to realize income on investments over time is by making it incredibly painful to hold on to it. And, and then try to pass it on to a foundation or to their family without ever paying the taxes, like close those loopholes. And all of a sudden, the incentive to hold on to it forever goes away or at least gets gets reduced. And like, I think that's an important thing. To yeah. Do. Well, so there's, there's two Biden proposals that aren't being talked about all that much. One is um, I think it's like seven hundred million dollars in funding for the IRS to go after tax cheats. Of course, now in classic Republicans are freaking out about the Biden proposal for $700 million more for the IRS to go after tax cheeks because they're saying that the existence of the ProPublica investigation is proof that the IRS can't be trusted with more money and resources because they're just going to leak your taxes to ProPublica, which, gets, by the way, doesn't give a shit about most of your taxes if you're not fucking Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett. <laughs> and we also don't know that it came from the IRS at all. <laughs> we don't know anything. It's actually, I, I actually would really encourage people to read ProPublica published this big expose, but they also published an essay basically looking at their the ethics of what they did, because ProPublica does not know where these materials came from. 
Right. They, they don't said know. It was anonymous. Yeah. Uh, and then the second Biden proposal is to tax capital gains as ordinary income for people whose income exceeds one million dollars. And that would be the tax owed on stocks, bonds, mutual funds and homes that have appreciated in value. Now, the reason we're not talking about a lot of these things is because some Democrats are getting cold feet about these uh, tax proposals. Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine wrote a piece on Saturday where he argued that the biggest threat to the Biden administration's agenda is moderate Democrats who are afraid or reluctant to raise taxes on the rich. He cites this Politico story that said, uh, corporate executives and lobbyists in Washington, New York, and around the country say they are confident they can kill almost all of these tax hikes by pressuring moderate Democrats in the House and the Senate. Um, Tommy, you were just making, what, what do you think of that argument? You were just saying the Democrats should make this a key part of their agenda. I mean, look, the the key problem, the biggest threat is a Republican party, right? Like they wake up every morning hoping to stuff the courts full of people who are gut regulations and then use reconciliation to, to pass tax cuts for the richest people. But, you know, if Republicans are holding up the bank, Democrats are driving the getaway car, right? Especially these moderates in, in wealthy districts. Um, I like to love its point earlier. I don't think Democrats have played this issue well because for decades we have gotten bogged down in a fight about the estate tax and how it somehow might impact farmers when that was total bullshit. It's really about the Koch brothers. In truth, you know, in some ways, like we're past the point of that estate tax fight even mattering anymore because rich people have found so many new ways to avoid even paying the estate tax. So I think Elizabeth Warren did a lot of great work pushing for the wealth tax. There are questions about the constitutionality that they're going to have to work out, but I think it's worth the fight. On the Biden piece of this, John, like one, I think it absolutely makes sense to tax capital gains as income. It's a no-brainer to me. I don't think that's going to slow down investment. Um, it's clear that a lot of these economic arguments against taxing the super rich are bullshit when you read about how these people are literally just hoarding wealth literally forever until they die, right? So I'm, I could care less about those. I would love to see more proposals like Biden's that are basically message bills. I want to see tough votes on these issues, like force a vote on a tax increase on income and cap gains for millionaires only. I don't care if it doesn't raise all the revenue we need, just force the issue because Biden has it in his plan. But I think the Democratic Party needs to do a lot more to make this a really uncomfortable issue for Republicans. And look, if some moderate Democrats are swept up into the fight because they represent a bunch of hedge fund people in like Greenwich, Connecticut, I don't really care. I, I think like we have to be for this. This is also, this is not just about the principle of making sure that the wealthy pay their fair share, though that is an important principle. And also it is incredibly politically popular, but like budget rules, and we're using budget rules because we can only pass things through reconciliation now, mandate that any permanent increase in the deficit be financed, which means that Biden and the Democrats either tax the rich or they don't pass the child tax credit, pre-K, community college, climate, health, anything else. So like, it is not often that you get a policy that is economically, morally, and politically compelling. Raising taxes on the wealthy hits all three. And I see like, a, you know, there's a lot of senators and the Sunrise Movement now are saying, you know, no climate, no deal, which I completely agree with on the infrastructure deal. I would say no taxes, no deal. Like I, this, this should be a centerpiece of the Democratic Party's platform for this year, for next year, going into the midterms, going into 2024. Like there is a populist rage in this country about the fact that rich people get away with murder <laughs> in yeah. not paying their taxes. Yeah. And by the way, we have all of these social programs that we can't fund without doing that. It, it is insane to me that, that Democrats might be cautious about this. Insane. I mean, we've we've been talking about this for a long time. So like, first of all, there's a bipartisan infrastructure proposal 
Raising taxes even a tiny bit on the wealthiest human beings in the history of planet Earth is a non-starter, but there's potentially an increase in the gas tax, which hits uh, everybody. Ah! Wild, wild. <laughs> but like, you know, we talk a lot. We, we've talked on this show many times about the fact that there is this Democratic brand problem. It's a deeper issue about why Democrats struggle to win, even in places where their policies do quite well. And like you, you look at what we've just been talking about. Enforcement against wealthy tax cheats, closing loopholes like carried interest and stepped up basis, higher taxes on the rich and corporations, including changes in the laws to prevent dynastic wealth, antitrust and like pro worker, pro union laws. That is progressive populism. That is an answer. We're sitting here facing populist authoritarians on the rise here in the United States and all over the world that threaten to unravel democracy. And this is a way to tell people, yes, we're making sure that people in power actually are held accountable and pay their fair share. And it yeah. is just sitting right there for the Democrats. And it's the other half of it's the other half of we we have, you know, we have talked many times about the importance of policies that show people actual improvements in their lives. This is the other side of this, yep. which is choosing the right opponents, choosing the right opponents. Yeah, there, there's a lot of like leftist critiques of the Democratic Party that I find frustrating and at times unfair. This is not one of them. It is yep, a no, problem. Totally that, agree. That there are a bunch of Dems uh, who have um, been more willing to listen to and do favors for Wall Street and some of the richest people on the planet uh, than to, you know, change the tax code and make it so it works for actual working people who we claim to represent. And it sucks. Yeah, I would just I would leave everyone with this and then we can move on. The Investors Business Daily poll, which was a poll that was very favorable to Trump and the Republicans during the campaign. It was it was commissioned by uh, investors who probably wanted a very different result uh, in late April, found that 65 percent of Americans are in favor of a proposal that would raise the capital gains tax rates for couples earning more than one million dollars. Sixty five percent. And I could list a million other polls for the last five years that say the same thing about any kind of proposal to raise tax is on wealthy people. It's not only popular with Democrats, but overwhelmingly popular with independents and probably half of Republicans. So the Angie's list, you know, and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. All right. President Biden is on day five of his first big foreign trip. Today, he's taking part in his first NATO summit as president. Tommy is our world-owned chief. Can you tell us what's happened so far on this trip and what do we need to know about? Uh, guys, it's been it's been a blast, been a hell of a trip. So he met with the G7 countries in the UK. G7 is US, UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Now he's in Brussels. On Wednesday, he goes to Geneva for a meeting with President Putin. So I want to give you guys two buckets of things we can talk about today. Some news you can use and then some stupid shit because foreign trips yeah. will always spin out all kinds of stupid narratives. So let's start with the news you can use. The first is around COVID. That's obviously the focus of the G7. The U.S. announced they're going to donate 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine as part of a roughly 1 billion dose broader commitment by the G7 to COVAX, which is this international organization to get the world vaccinated. Now, like a billion doses, it's obviously a lot. It's obviously good, but it is well short of the 11 billion doses that the World Health Organization says they need to vaccinate 70% of the planet. So 
a lot of activists uh, have been really hammering the G7 for falling short on this issue. There's obviously a moral element to the need to get the world vaccinated. But I guess my question for you guys is, do we think these G7 countries should be a little more concerned about this, in particular for selfish reasons, because an ongoing pandemic is going to stall the entire global economy and make it harder for everyone in the same ways we saw ourselves like limp out of the financial crisis. That seems like a bad setup to me. Yeah, no, I mean, as I'm looking in the headlines today, like now everyone's talking about this Delta variant and the Delta variant started in uh, you know, came from India and it is more transmissible and it is possibly deadlier. And the, the, you're going to get more variants like that that could potentially be more dangerous and more transmissible in places where the population is largely unvaccinated, which was happening in India before um, it was hit with that terrible surge. So, like, as long as there are countries out there with unvaccinated populations that do not have access to these vaccines, that is a threat to the United States. That is a threat to everyone else, both to the unvaccinated people in these countries and if the variants get bad enough, possibly vaccinated populations as well. So it is in the self-interest of every single country and every single person around the world to make sure that the entire globe is vaccinated. Do you think, Tommy, that it was like a a political issue why they don't donate more? Or is it like a capacity issue? Like, I can't tell if it's like we haven't vaccinated our own country first, so we don't want to be given away too much. I, I couldn't understand that. I, I, I couldn't tell either. I, I do think that the politics of this are harder for some of these European countries that are behind us. But um, there is mm. certainly a capacity issue. It's not just like the number of doses you can manufacture. It's actually... Uh, building the infrastructure to get those doses into the arms of all the people who need them. And I think that's that last mile problem has proven to be a problem with some of these COVAX programs. Hmm. The other big issue is climate change, right? So the G7 countries came out of this. They committed to getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Activists, again, uh, wanted a lot more. Specifically, they wanted the G7 to agree on a hard date to stop the use of coal. And they wanted the rich developed countries that are part of the G7 to cut checks to de- help developing countries cut their emissions. So, like, you know, guys, it's always fun to transition from a conversation about one existential threat to humanity to another. But again, like, again, people are very frustrated uh, about this outcome. Love it. Do you think it's fair to expect more out of Biden on on climate change like this early in his first term? And do you think this just, again, like raises the stakes on passing our own climate infrastructure bill? Well, yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, I mean, it's very fair. Um, it's a threat to humanity and life on this planet. Uh, and we have to move much faster than we are. The U.S. has not been a leader. And we have to, like, not just make up for the damage Donald Trump did over four years in pulling us out of Paris. We have to demonstrate that we're serious about leading the industrialized world and moving much faster than we've been moving. I do think as important as an international agreement on this is, it is more important that we lead by example and demonstrate that we're actually serious about reducing our carbon footprint as a country Um, and demonstrating that it's not just good for the planet, but a good economic decision, that it will help us sort of lead in industries and have like a beneficial effect for job creation and our economy. I think that's the far more important thing. Um, But yeah, there is absolutely no reason not to put incredible amounts of pressure on the Biden administration um, to to lead. There's no reason. You think uh, you think Biden had to say to the other G7 leaders, sorry, I got a fucking coal miner as my prime minister back in the States. Uh, Joe Manchin's my 51st yeah. vote. And so I uh, can't do much. I mean, probably. Yeah. Look, I mean, the G7 countries, I think, are like 20 to 25 percent of global emissions, which obviously is just a piece of the puzzle. But it does require some leadership from us, uh, from the more developed countries to then go pressure China and India and other uh, countries whose economies are still developing to say, hey, please stop using these plants and you know, we'll help you with that transition. 
Okay, last thing was a big change in tone on China. So at the beginning of the year, the European Union had signed uh, this major trade and investment deal with China. That deal is now on life support because they're frustrated with the Chinese. And this week, the G7 called on China to respect human rights on Hong Kong. Uh, they called on the respect human rights with the Uyghurs, and they basically told China to chill out with threats against Taiwan. Uh, and now the Chinese military is a big topic at NATO. So, you know, it was interesting to see this shift from Europe cutting a deal with China to pushing back relatively hard for them on a, a bunch of fronts. But I guess my question for you guys is, does it ever make you nervous that the only thing that seems to rally the U.S. Congress or apparently the G7 leaders uh, is anti-China sentiment? Like, I do feel like we're kind of walking backwards into a bit of a new Cold War here, but um, I don't know. What do you think? I, sometimes I think it does seem a little bit like domestically, Joe Biden has this moderate persona and that's allowed him to do far more sweeping and progressive policy changes. And then internationally, uh, he is he strikes such a different tone and tenor on virtually every issue than his predecessor. And in practice, of course, but that the actual changes we're talking about here are more incremental. Like it's almost like the opposite kind of dynamic. Um, because, you know, there is a genuine <laughs> challenge posed by, by China um, and we do need to address it. And obviously we've talked about this before, we do not want to address it by kind of fanning the xenophobia that Donald Trump saw as central to his his domestic politics. I mean, Dan and I talked about this Thursday, but it did get us a quarter of a trillion dollars in investment for research, science, and technology in America. So that's something. No, but I do. I have noticed that Biden and Tony Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, and and others in the administration have really tried to emphasize that it's not just China, but it's China and other authoritarian governments. And so they're trying to talk about this in terms of authoritarianism versus democracy and not make it just about China itself. They try to throw Russia in there as well. And I do, I always wonder as someone who doesn't pay as close attention to foreign policy, like how much of this is political and how much of it is sort of real changes in China's posture over the last five, 10 years that we should be concerned about because they're more aggressive. I, I, not, I just don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I think the answer is like there have been real changes since Xi Jinping came on the scene and he's been increasingly aggressive, not only at home with like installing a surveillance state and throwing the Uyghurs into concentration camps in Western China, but also just hammering any country that dares to criticize the Chinese on any issue, hammering the NBA, hammering, you know, movie companies, John Cena, yeah. you know, like literally everybody yeah. who gets cross-sized with well, them. It's um, it, it is like there was this bet made in the nineties yeah, that just WTO, seems to have yeah. been complete, completely wrong. Like liberalize their economy and will liberalize their politics. It, that has not happened in any way. It's the opposite has taken place. They got all the economic might that they had hoped for, but none of the reforms internally. Uh, and so it's like there is a kind of I think grasping for what a replacement theory on China should look like. That's not what we were doing in the past ignoring abuses uh, and hoping that things would change and certainly not the Donald Trump posture, which is, you know, a lot of kind of sound and fury. No, you're, you're at, like, that was really right. But 
Trump's approach was uh, trade war and then pay off the farmers in the U.S. who were hurt. Biden is trying to internationalize the problem, and, and I think that's a, a better approach long term. I mean, but Lovey, you're you're right that like fundamentally the biggest difference on this trip is just the vibe. Like even Boris Johnson, who yeah. is like Trump's biggest cheerleader, is is calling Biden quote a breath of fresh air. That's remarkable. That was uh, yeah, I could. He used to he had racist attacks against Barack Obama not long ago, and there was a Pew poll that showed you know these twelve countries they surveyed they found that America's favorability basically doubled as we went from Trump to Biden. So, okay, like we said, a lot of these trips include important foreign policy announcements. All of them generate stupid narratives and headlines. So let's talk about some of those because they're more fun. Uh, The first, guys, is uh, bromance. Uh, The Daily Mail declared that bromance is in the air. President Biden was seen joking with uh, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister. He was seen locking arms with French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Macron tweeted out a photo or video of himself talking like super close with Biden that one uh, Twitter user described as him looking like a coked up tech founder pitching Biden on his startup. Love it. Question for you. When did bromance <laughs> enter into our lexicon? I I don't know. I do hate it. I hate it too. Um, it's like, well, a, it's it's like um, a fucking, it's like a fun word for journalists who are usually pretty boring to use. <laughs> well, I guess it's <laughs> that's what, what I, I, that's I, thought, I take. It. Yes. It's just sort of like, you know, they're collegial. I think, isn't it just a romance? Like, what makes you right. so uncomfortable about it just being yeah. a romance? Like, yeah. it's a non-sexual. What that'd be such a funny headline: non-sexual romance between the inter. You wouldn't say that, of course. That right. sounds ridiculous. But that's what they mean when they say bromance. They mean two men who do not want to have sex with other men have chemistry. Right. Yep. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. That's a. That's a. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Long headline, but that would be very Reuters. That would be, that would Reuters. <laughs> Reuters, Dateline, Paris, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, non-sexual attraction seen between Biden and Macron. So I did some quick Googling uh, and found references to Obama bromances with Biden, John Boehner, Prince Harry, Justin Trudeau, David Cameron, Narendra Modi, David Brooks, although I think we'd all agree that was more of a torrid love affair over many years. I could go on and on, <laughs> but yes, to your point, love it. Uh, the, the longer headline is more apropos. Um, okay, also on these trips, leaders give each other gifts for some reason. The results can range from like poignant to boring to weird. So uh, I don't know if you guys saw this. Apparently, Biden gave Boris Johnson uh, a fancy handmade bike from Philadelphia. It cost like six grand. It was a nice thing. Boris Johnson gave Biden, quote, a framed photo of Frederick Douglass printed out from Wikipedia. What? I didn't see that. <laughs> I always more, think more and more, um, more and more people are talking about him. More now. and more. That's right. <laughs> he's, he's getting it's more very, and more notice. I forget what that was. It's very um arrogant to give art as a gift because it's saying I want to decorate your house. It's hard. It's a hard call. Oh my god! Print it out from Wikipedia. I, are you thinking about a specific piece of art that you were given as a gift? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Because uh, I am, and now I am. I t- now I am. Uh, I titled this section "Age is Just a Number." So, like symbolism, public diplomacy—they're a big part of every foreign trip. I tried to get out of that one fast. In the UK, a critical piece of that is uh, President Biden's visit with the Queen. So, Biden became the twelfth president to meet the Queen, and he said she reminded him of his mother, which I enjoyed because Biden is seventy-eight and she is ninety-five. Just leaving that one maybe there ho- Maybe in Hollywood, she could play the mother. Hey, Tommy, you were given a gift of a work of art. Where did you hang it in your house? <laughs> uh, in my home. Mm-hmm. Where? Somewhere prominent? In my office. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last thing. Uh, every foreign trip involves a fight over press access. Uh, in one case, I remember an Obama foreign trip. Uh, Robert Gibbs almost got his foot broken by a bunch of 
folks in, I, I think, the India's security services who are trying to lock our press out. That's a good version of the fight. The bad version of the fight is when reporters complain that they can't cover stuff. So right now, as of my count, uh, the press seem pissed that Biden and Putin aren't doing a joint press conference. I think Biden's doing one solo because the last joint press conference with Putin in Helsinki went so well for America. They're also mad that they didn't get access to Biden's inspection of the honor guard at Windsor Castle. In this morning, they're pissed that Turkey put out a readout of the Biden-Erdogan uh, bilateral meeting faster than the Biden team. All of this, frankly, is like normal and and probably a good push and pull. But it reminded me of one of my favorite moments from the 2012 campaign when a Mitt Romney uh, foreign trip moment went viral. Let's play a clip. Governor Romney, do you have a statement for the Palestinians? What about your gaffes? Governor Romney, do you feel that your gaffes have overshadowed your foreign trip? Holy for the Polish people. Show some respect. Governor Romney, just to Show some respect. We, we haven't had another chance to ask him questions. This is a holy sight for the Polish people. Show some respect. Uh, that's that's a Romney flack telling the press to shut up because it's a holy site. Sorry, John. However many views that clip has on YouTube, I am about 70% of them. It is my favorite. <laughs> and I never in my life have I been more on Mitt Romney's side than on that clip. And he's just trying to walk away. What about your gaffes? What a so, question. What about your gas? I love what that. about it, your gas? I do, I do think like, shout out to, I. is that Ashley Parker? Yeah, it is Ashley, Ashley Parker. Parker. We've talked to Ashley about it before. She's a good sport about it. It was Ashley Parker and Phil, and Phil Rucker was the other one too. Because no, because what about your gas became the question, but that really, the comedy of that question really does rely on the very specific kind of full question that Ashley shouts. Like it's like a full question. It's not just a shout, it's a question. And then, oh, what about your gaffes? It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. And then also, do you think that your gaffes have overshadowed your foreign trip? What's, what do you answer? Are you expecting to that? Yes. Yes, Abs- they have. Absolutely. Yes. Based my foreign on, trip based has on been this 100% exchange. overshadowed by my gaffes, which you yeah. have reported. This is a holy sight for the Polish people. <laughs> these uh, these trips are high wire act. So far, I think Biden's doing pretty well. I mean, look, you know, not all of the deliverables that uh, activists and policy folks want to see out of every summit. But again, it's the first one. So, you know. Look, for a guy known for a lot of gaffes, we have not seen a lot of Biden gaffes. Well, it's also, I mean, the the big difference in this foreign trip, just like everything else in the Biden presidency, is sort of like the low expectations that Donald Trump set for him, right? Like, you know, looking at the news over the last week, it's like, oh, there's not like something fucking crazy every few minutes about the United States president going overseas, which is what happened when Trump went over there. It was just sort of quiet, which is good. And it's like, yeah, I mean, right. It's like, you know, <laughs> uh, as Joe Biden would say, don't judge me against the almighty, judge me against the alternative. It is <laughs> nice not having a a a president threatening to exit NATO on a sort of near constant basis. Yeah, the, the, the previous almighty uh, made headlines at one of these events by punching the uh, president of Montenegro, I think. So, yeah, you know, he's <laughs> Biden stepping over a low bar here, but uh, good for him. Well, so. Well, well, Tommy, you make a good point. When they go Montenegro, we we really have to go. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yes. not doing it. Uh, but you make a good, th- these kinds of uh, ridiculous foreign policy stories have been around for a long time. And so now it's time for a game. International travel. 
It's an opportunity to experience new cultures and Google local tipping practices for reporters and administration officials like Tommy Vitor. It's a chance to wander exhausted and bleary-eyed through various European conference spaces, remnants of ambient molecules fighting a desperate Leningrad-like battle against fresh <laughs> caffeine in the bloodstream, while trying to figure out how to make sense of what amounts to 75% of the president's job and 1% of the country's attention. The result is nuanced and substantive coverage of the delicate dance of diplomacy plus genuine nonsense. So let's focus on that in a game we call The World Is Not Enough. Here's how it works. I'm going to ask you both questions about the most absurd moments of foreign trips past. Tommy, I'll start with you. In a scandal dubbed Obamagate, President Barack Obama was accused of leering at a young woman at the G8. He was exonerated when the video clearly showed that uh, that was misleading uh, and was not true at all. But it did not exonerate the person with whom President Obama was standing, who wasn't absolved by the video footage in the same incident. Was it Sarkozy? It was. It was French President yes. Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, who it seemed to have been actually leering. John, over to you. Quote, it was a mutual and spontaneous display of affection, a Buckingham Palace spokesman said. We don't issue instructions on not touching the queen. John, who touched the queen? Uh, Michelle Obama? It was. It was Michelle Obama. You got nice. it. You got it. Tommy. In 2013, the world was rocked when President Obama took a selfie at a memorial service. Who was memorialized? And bonus, Easy with whom one. was the selfie taken? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Fuck, I'm just going to th- throw a, a dart at a Nordic country. Estonia? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I know that's no, not Nordic. No, uh, was, it, was it the uh, wife of the Dutch PM? Or was it the Dutch PM? Dutch PM? It was the Danish Prime Minister, Hel Thorning Schmidt. And who? There's one other person in that pick. Oh, I don't know that. It's British Prime Minister David Cameron. Oh, my God. I should have stuck with my guns and not swerved to Estonia. That's on me. John. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Estonian. It's tough for the Estonian uh, leader to get in in that kind of self. John, who rubbed whose back at the G8 in 2006? George W. Bush, Angela Merkel. One of the weirdest fucking things. It's yeah. a really uncomfortable video. The photos are like, like, he forgot where he was. Like, ah. She's like, get your fucking arms out. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the, <laughs> the chancellor of Germany. Do you know what we do when we get mad? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, because it's pride, Tommy and John, my no homo major domos, in 2009, Obama gave Queen Elizabeth II an iPod loaded with songs from classic American musicals. Name one. Name one fucking song from a classic on, American that, musical oh, that, that, was that was on the on, iPod. Oh, that was on the iPod? Um, John, you first. I don't know. Something Name a song. Name a classic American. Something from American Cats? <laughs> Memory from Cats? Wait. Is that, is that yes. right? Yes. Oh it was God. on there. Tommy, yes. you're going to have to guess one. That Name might one be the only song. song from any musical that I know. <laughs> it's unbelievable that they got that on there. Honestly, it shouldn't even be there. Shame on them for putting it on there. Uh, Name <laughs> one classic musical song. 521,600. No. <laughs> Is that right? Seasons of Love was on no there. No way! Seasons of Love <laughs> from Rent was on there. Very proud of Some you. Other job. songs. Oklahoma. There's no business like show business from Annie Get Your Gun. Some Enchanted Evening from South Pacific, Everything's Coming Up Roses from Gypsy, and If I Were a Rich Man, hmm. 
Zero Mostel from Fiddler on the Roof. Wow. Very exciting to see that there. Hey, hey love, before we end, I just want to thank um, Congressman Ronnie Jackson for the pills on these foreign trips and the memories. You you kept me up. You put me down. You were there for me before you became uh, a total MAGA (laughs) lunatic. So thank you for the pills and the memories and the erased memories because of the pills. (laughs) Shout out Ronnie Jackson. Yeah, leave it in. Oh, leave it all Tommy up. All right. Um, thank you to Congresswoman Val Demings for joining us today. I'm glad she didn't have to stick around for all this. Um, uh, we will uh, have everyone have a good week. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.